Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome once again to another episode of So Married a Horror Fan. This is episode 121. That's madness. It is madness indeed. And I am one of your co-hosts for today, Simon. I'm Lee. And uh, it is a lovely bank holiday Monday here in the United Kingdom as we are celebrating the remnants of the Easter times. It is. Uh, we are not actually doing anything today, which is lovely, because we have had a fucking mental weekend. We have had a very busy weekend. Uh, we went to go and see the Mario movie, which was great. Uh, I think I've got paint on my trousers. Um, we Then we were at an all-day music festival on Saturday, which was lush. And then we spent most of yesterday, or today, because we're recording this episode on Sunday, uh, fucking painting our front room. Yeah. Uh, and trying to stop cats from rubbing themselves against freshly painted walls. <laughs> well, more I was more trying to stop Dexter from fucking eating paint because yeah, he's a true. little idiot, and he was like looking at the paint and he was like, "Oh, this looks tasty." Yeah. Um, yeah, that is definitely paint on my trousers. Good job, babe. Um, I thought I did. Uh, did we fair that great? And we painted the house with grey paint, so there's probably going to be like loads more of this somewhere. Find um, the washer. Yeah, so today is a lovely bank holiday Monday in the United Kingdom. We are bringing you our second episode for April. Mm. And also, I'm going to say it really quickly before she stops me. It's Lee's birthday. No, it's not. I don't let anyone talk about it. Yay. She is redacted years old today, if you are listening to this episode the day it is released. So, if you listen to this episode, come find us on social media and wish her a happy birthday. Please don't. I'm not celebrating. Haha. <laughs> You can't outrun Father Time. I can give it my best fucking um, go. And as it's your birthday, what movie did you pick for us to cover today? For my birthday this year, I picked Crimson Peak. Yay! Guillermo, Toro, Guillermo del Toro's Incest Ghost Party. Yeah. Do you know what? Actually, I'm going to save it for in a minute when we talk about this movie. Um... You do your thing. I'm going to try and scrape this paint off my trousers. Okay, right. So, Crimson Peak, released in 2015. Uh, written by Guillermo del Toro and Matthew Robbins. Directed by Guillermo del Toro, obviously. Uh, Cast-wise this movie, we have... Right, ready? Mm-hmm. Mia Vushikovska. It's as close as we're getting. I apologise if that was wrong. As Edith Cushing. Jessica Chastain as Lucille Sharp, Tom Hiddleston as Thomas Sharp, Charlie Hunnam as Dr. Alan McMichael, Jim Beaver as Carter Cushing, uh, Byrne Gorman as Horry, as Horry? Holly. <laughs> um, Doug Jones as Edith's mother slash Lady Sharp in Ghost Forms. We're going to go with on that one. Uh, Leslie Hope as Mrs. McMichael. And then outside of that, not really anybody else that is... Of, oh, um, Javier Botet as... Javier Botet. Botet? Yeah, I think it's okay. pronounced Botet. As Enola, Margaret and Pamela, the ghosts of... Enola's um, ghost. Enola's ghost. Uh, I think that's really kind of it cast-wise. Um... This movie was made on a budget of $55 million. And gross worldwide, it made $74,679,822. Nice. Yeah. Um, 
Can I ask you a question? I'm just going to start off once um, you've done when, once you've done your bit. I'm going to ask you a question. Okay. Because uh, a summary for this film is: um, in the aftermath of a family tragedy, an aspiring author is torn between love of her childhood friend and the temptation of a mysterious outsider. Trying to escape the ghosts of her past, past, she is swept away to a house that breathes and bleeds and remembers. Nice. Nice. Um. When is this movie supposed to have been set? So this film is set at some point in 1901. I do feel like it kind of covers the whole year of 1901. Because I thought it said in the synopsis on Wikipedia it was like 18 something. No, 1901. Are you sure? Yes. I distinctly remember like an 1887 or something. Yeah, I think that's when her mum died. Right, that's what I'm trying to figure out. Uh, but I'm pretty confident it is set in 1901. Yeah, 1887 is when her mother dies mm-hmm. and her, warns her beware of Crimson Peak. 1901 is when the film is set. And when is Sherlock Holmes set? 1800s, I believe. Sherlock Holmes. Um, Born in eighteen fifty four, he first appears in print in eighteen eighty seven. But I don't know uh what time period it would have actually been set in but 887 makes kind of sense if he would have been born in 54 mm-hmm. it would have made him 33 in 87 so yeah 87 was when he first appears in scott study and scarlet okay so the same year her mother dies sherlock holmes is just solving his first case with watson I was more concerned by where the fucking popularity of the name Enola came from. Well, Enola's not... I don't think Enola's actually what their sister is called, but they don't have a sister in the book. They have a brother. Mm. Mycroft. No, they have another brother. An unnamed third Holmes brother. Dave. Yeah, Dave Holmes. Really common name in the 1800s. Well, it's just because, like, um, obviously... No, I think Enola is just a... It's, it was quite a popular name for, like, the 1800s, mm. but it wasn't... She's not actually from the Sherlock Because the only thing, like... And this is why I keep singing the song whenever we mention her name, is because I know the song Enola Gay by Orchestral Maneuvers in the Dark, which is about, like, a fucking bomb or something. And I was like, that song came out in, like, the 80s. And that's, like, the only thing I know is, like, the Enola Gay bomb. It was, like, one of the first, like big bombs of its type. Enola Gay. And then I was like, it seems weird that there's like Enola in this and then Enola Holmes. Even though she's not a fictional character from like Sherlock Law, it seems weird that she would have like, the films that she's in are set in that time period. Uh, It gained popularity. It was most popular in approximately 1895, which is probably why it's used a lot. Mm. Uh, in these time periods. Mm. And that would also make sense for how old she's supposed to be if he was like... Because he's supposed to be about 15, 20 years older than her, isn't he? Yes, approximately, something like that. Yeah, It's the Cavill to Bobby Brown scale. 
because he's the same age as me. He's 38 and she's 18 in real life. So mm. there's about a 20 year age gap between them. Yeah, I don't know how old exactly uh, Thomas and Lucille are supposed to be. I don't think it's ever addressed. I'm sure I could do the math somewhere based on when their mother was killed. So they were, I think they say in the film he was 12 and Lucille yeah. was 14. Yeah, so 1887. No, that's not when their mother died. That's, that's when, when her, her mother, mother died. You can, you guys can tell. I in the two times I've seen this movie, I have paid all of the attention. Um, right, let's do the maths. Let me just figure out when their mother was killed. Why are we figuring um, this out? So we can figure out how old the kids are. Wow, I say kids. Why do we need to figure out how old the kids Because you were asking how old he was. No, no, no. I was talking about the popularity of the name Enola, and then you said that she was bought, like, the name Enola came into popularity at that time, and I was like, well, that would make sense if... Oh, right, okay, so you're talking about Enola versus Sherlock. Yeah, because I was like, if he was born in 1887 and the name grew to popularity in, like, 1895, then she would have been, like, 10 when he... Like, he would have been, like, 10 when she was born. So I was trying to approximate, like, the age difference between them. For like the film version, yeah, nothing. To do. I He'd like... have been like forty when she was born. If it was popular in ninety five, eighteen ninety five. Yeah, he was born he in eighteen eighty seven. Oh, okay. Case. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That makes more sense. Yeah, so yeah, he'd have been about yeah. Anyway, we're getting wildly off topic. As I still we do ha- when you don't really care for the film. Yeah, much. but I still haven't seen that second Enola Holmes movie with Mycroft in it. No, not Mycroft. It's got what's his face in it, isn't it? Lestrade. No, who's the geezer? Who's the geezer that's like the main... Oh, I can't think of his name. Moriarty. Yeah, there we go. I knew it was like yes, a... Yes, Moriarty's in it. I was like, I knew it was a m name. Yeah, Moriarty. Yeah. It's quite good, actually. I enjoyed it. Because he's a big bad, isn't it, right? He's all like, hey, man, I'm doing shady stuff with like kids in I mean, a sweatshop or something. He's the know. big bad in most Sherlock stories, to be honest. See, man, that's why I appreciate Guy Ritchie's first Sherlock Holmes movie so much, because he created a villain for it. Lord Blackwood well, is like Well, he's a... not... So, like, Mycroft... Mycroft, no. Moriarty, I think, gets introduced in The Seven Pips, which is, uh, like, it's not... It's relatively further into the canon, because, like, the first story is kind of... Scarlet yeah, because they always, they always think of... They always mention the study in Scarlet, Hound of Baskervilles... Is like the famous one. Yeah, he's not the villain either of those. Yeah, which they haven't done yet. Like in the Richie verse, they haven't done because they did obviously the Lord Blackwood story, which I think is fucking great. That first Reich and Back yeah, Fools. and then they did Reich and Back and um, Moriarty in the second movie, which that movie such false advertising. Now, like it's called a Game of Shadows, bitch. They meet each other in a public place like the first time, and he figures out who he is straight away, and then they just crack on. Yeah, but yeah, anyway. This fucking movie, man. I've seen like I, I just I would love to know like Del Toro like is my guy. We've covered how many of his fucking films now? So many. We've done Pan's Labyrinth. We've done Mimic. We've done Hellboy. So we've done three of his movies so far. Mm-hmm. This is our fourth movie because we were going to do Blade Two and then we did Blade instead. Um. So this is like our fourth time covering him, and like. I find myself constantly going, what the fuck is wrong with this man? Like, what is wrong with him? Nothing. Like, Del Toro is a genius. Like, we all know this. I've talked at length about how much I love and respect the guy. But I think he's a fucking lunatic. Like, who the fuck... When you think about this run of movies, he does Pacific Rim, then this, then fucking The Shape of Water. Like... 
He's like big robots, incest, monster fucking. Like, and he wrote the script for this. Apparently, like the original script of this was written before Pan's Labyrinth. Yeah, it was. Like, and so... he wrote thirteen different runs of this script, and he was still writing scenes when he was filming it. He was adding things in and taking stuff out as he yeah. was filming it. Like, I feel like when he dies, and I hope that's for a ver- not for a very long time yet. I I feel like there will be so many like unused scripts or like pieces of work that will like posthumously get made that people will get like unless he's got something in his will that's like never make anything do not I fucking ever touch this yeah like or he might have things of like in the unfortunate event that I die if these works are to be made like only X Y and Z people can can make them mm. um, but yeah like I would love to know. Like, what was going through his head when he was writing this and Pan's Labyrinth, like, simultaneously? But, like, there are a lot of similarities in a weird way between this and Pan's Labyrinth, I think. Mm. They, like, they they both kind of have... If you look at the protagonists, they both have people that are, like, on their own. They go from, like, a world into another world and they're being led, not necessarily by demons or, like but they're being led by something otherworldly to uncover something that is going to help them in the world that they come from. Um, ultimately, like that's a very like bullet points version of both the stories. I don't see it, but okay. Because like Washakowski in this is like looking, she's, she's talking to the ghosts are like, Hey man, look, that motherfucker did it. Like, one of the ghosts literally points her in a direction. It's like, if you go around the corner into that room, you are going to see some shit that's going to make you want to pour bleach in your eyes. Um, but yeah, it's... Uh, it Like, I will never pretend that I like this movie. And I will never pretend that I understand this movie. And this is the only Guillermo del Toro movie that I have seen that has made me genuinely go, what in the actual fuck were you thinking um however i remember being like you probably remember this i remember being very very excited about this movie coming out i had a one i had the beautiful one sheet for this on my bedroom wall of her in the snow with the candelabra or the fucking wasn't it's not candelabra what's the fucking thing that they have like the candlestick things that they hold candles in um candelabra it is a candelabra i don't know why my brain went candelabra chandelier i don't know um, but yeah, I was really excited about seeing this movie came out. I was like, yeah, Del Toro is going to do gothic romance. My man loves Frankenstein. Like he loves all that shit. Like it's going to be fucking great. And then I remember going to the cinema and seeing it with you and was like, <sighs> and then we've just watched it now for the first time in eight. I don't know how many times you've seen this I've movie. I've seen it quite a few times. But this is the second time I've seen it in eight years. And I just rem- I was sitting there going, <sighs> It's the first time in his career, I think, of all the movies of his that I've seen where I've gone, bro, that was a complete misfire. And you know how much I don't like that second Hellboy movie as well. Mm-hmm. I would watch the second Hellboy movie a lot more times than I would ever want to rewatch this. Okay. But I didn't pick this movie, so you're not... Past this point, you're probably not going to hear much else from me on this episode. So I'm going to turn it over to you. And just tell me some stuff about this movie. Okay, so this film, I adore this film. A, it's got Tom Hiddleston, uh, Jessica Chastain, and uh, Mia Vaz- Vazikowski in it. 
and Charlie, no one's really sure where my accent is from, Hunnam. Yeah. Who, all of whom I do really like as actors. Um, it's Guillermo del Toro, who I adore. This movie, so we went to see this at the cinema, and I have rewatched it a few times since. You pick up a lot more on rewatch from this movie, but it is fucking gorgeous. <clears throat> like, honestly, stunning. Yeah, I'm not going to disagree with you on that. It's a good looking movie, and the Arrow Blu-ray that we bought because. We we had it on Blu-ray, or you had it on Blu-ray, and then you Blu-ray. went and bought the Arrow version. I did. And I will say, I would love to have watched the normal Blu-ray, and then I'd like to have watched the Arrow one to see if there's like a difference in quality, because Arrow ones tend to be like really well restored. Um, but yeah, I remember, I was like watching it, and I was going, I don't remember this movie being like this good looking, and this... It's so stunning. This colourful, because there's like, like scenes in it that are like really stark... But then he puts like the colour against it to like when they're in the snow and there's all the red everywhere, or like when they're in the house and there's like there's one scene that's like just green. Um that's really cool. There's like um it's I think it's just after she's just discovered them, like everything goes green before she pushes her off the balcony. And like the clay is it clay mines? Mm-hmm. When she goes down the bottom of the house and like you see all the brickwork and like the red against it mm-hmm. like it's it's a it is a lush film and that fucking canary yellow dress that she's wearing as well but yeah sorry continue well funnily enough you mentioned that dress because this is the first thing i want to talk about is the costume design it is rare you all get me talking about costume designs on films we follow we watch mostly because i have zero interest in fashion unless it is uh, edwardian victorian period because i think the co- clothing design for that period is interesting in what it shows you about a person I will say, I don't know who they get to make the costumes on Bridgerton or The Crown, but those motherfuckers must be making so much money because every time I see something from Bridgerton or The Crown, everyone looks like fucking impeccably dressed, mm-hmm. uh, especially The Crown because obviously it's all historical, so they're actually recreating like genuine outfits that the royal family have worn. But yeah, like I will say one thing, Del Toro... I don't know what part of his budgets he puts by, but man gets really good fucking costume designers to do his films. Yeah, I can't. It's, I think it's Katie something. Because the thing is as well, like you look at some of the outfits, like um, what is it in fucking Hellboy 2? It's like the Elf King or some shit, isn't it? The guy who's like the main villain. Yeah. Like you look at some of the outfits that motherfucker's wearing and like some of the outfits that like the creatures and stuff are wearing. Uh, Kate Hawley did the costume yeah, design it's... for this. So this is like bananas. One of the, right, so I have a thing about dresses from this time period because it really tells you something about the person, especially in an era that was over the a thirty year period. Clothing choices completely altered because we had the start of the feminist movement kicking in the late eighteen hundred, early nineteen hundreds, mm-hmm. and it comes across really well across two characters in Lucille and Edith's costume design. Allow me to remove my dressing gown so I have space to <laughs> really get into this. So, this is fucking hilarious. I wish you guys could see what I see right now. Right. So I feel like I'm about to get a goddamn Tony Robbins <laughs> motivational speech. Right. So we have two two quite obviously different sets of characters. Thomas and Lucille being one, and then Edith being the other. Right. We'll start with Thomas and Lucille's costume design. None of their clothes are modern for the time period. All of the clothes that they wear are still 
I'm pretty sure it's the Edwardian era that came before the Victorian, but somebody might correct me. My historical knowledge is very slim on the ground for that time period. Uh, but all of their clothes are late 1800s designs, especially in Edith. It's a lot of very structured dresses with exceedingly high necklines. Yes. By the time this movie is set, that had fallen out of style. Mm -hmm. You see it in Edith. All of her dresses are looser with the puffy sleeves. There's more movement to all of them. And this tells you something immediately when you meet them, that these people appear rich, their clothes are made of what, like beautiful materials, but they're out of style. Mm -hmm. Which, if anybody, is, if anybody has any idea of fashion, so that area immediately tells you that they are presenting themselves as something that they are not. Uh, Lucille's jewellery is another um, representation of that. A lot of her jewellery is glasswork against Edith, who wears pearls. Again, it shows Edith does have money... While Lucille and Thomas don't. Okay. Uh, and this is just like when you first meet them, it immediately tells you something about both of these characters. <clears throat> I would not have known any of this. No. It's one of those things that will completely fly over your head if you don't know about the fashion from that time period. But if you do, it's a really great nod to the fact. The other great thing they do in this movie is as the film progresses, Edith wears a lot of, when, especially when she's in Boston, it's a lot of um, like golden colours. Very light and airy colours. Once she starts romancing Thomas, you see darker tones be brought into her outfits. A great example is when they do the picnic scene mm -hmm. and she's got like the black, kind of like a butterfly design inside the hat. Yeah. Um, and as the film goes on, you see more introduction of darker tones into her wardrobe. Because she in danger, girl. It's not just that, it's her falling into the trap of the Sharp family. It's a visual representation of that. They also do a great outfit of the canary yellow dress. When you first see her in this dress, she's wearing a lilac flowered overcoat. Mm -hmm. Again, for most people, it means nothing. Uh, violet and flowers are a mourning colour. Mm -hmm. She's mourning her dad. And her outfit represents that. Which will fly over so many people's heads, but somebody paid attention and went, that time period, purple was mourning. Yeah. And so they put her in it. This is good stuff, by the way. Thank you. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just excited to talk about it. The other side of that as well is Lucille and Thomas's outfits quite regularly throughout the movie match with each other in colour schemes. When she first arrives to the house... Lucille is wearing a dress in a dark blue that matches the wallpaper of the house itself and Thomas's overcoat matches that colour. Again, it, they're so entwined with each other that their outfits have like resemble each other and they resemble the house that they're tied to. Mm -hmm. And it continues throughout the film. Lucille and Thomas only wear maybe like four or five different outfits throughout the course of the movie. Edith has a lot more. Yeah. Again, she has the money to replenish her wardrobe until she comes to England. The Sharps don't. Yes. And you continue to see the effect that the Sharps are having on Edith through her wardrobe. Uh, her colours start darkening. More black is being introduced. Uh, her... Dresses start getting tighter and more structured. Mm -hmm. There's one great scene, and I believe it's an emerald green dress she's wearing, or quite close to emerald, and it has a completely structured front and the high neckline. 
mm-hmm. like the shark, like the dresses Lucille wears. Mm-hmm. And that entire, the way they've designed the entire wardrobe of these characters actually tell the story as it's occurring. Of Lucille falling into Thomas's trap and becoming a part of the shops and falling into their web is represented through the clothing they put her in. The only time you don't see Lucille in something structured and you start to see Edith again back in the brighter colour tones is at the end of the film when they are both wearing their nightgowns and they both have their hair down. It is the only scene in the film where Lucille's hair is not up. Mm-hmm. Is that end sequence? Yes. And this, to me, when you're watching it, reads as like that moment of like she's no longer hiding. Edith has seen her for what exactly what she is. Yeah. Clothing, hair isn't going to change that anymore. Her masks are completely gone. And that final sequence of them both in their nightgowns is fucking fantastic because it is. It's both of them being completely free of everything. Edith knows the truth. Lucille is no longer hiding. And it's represented in the costume design. Sorry. I realise I went on a massive rant about costume design then. But it's rare I get to talk about costumes. A lot of horror films are modern and there's not really a lot to talk about. Do Midsummer next. God, no. Um, Now feels like a really good time to announce to the people that we do have a spin-off podcast coming called... called (laughs) Doth the Bardware Prada, <laughs> and we will just be looking at like period films and their costuming. Uh, look for that coming in the next couple of months. <sighs> just gonna break down like Downton Abbey and Little Women and like Jane Austen <laughs> shit. Like it's just so interesting, and it's it's an eye to detail that, like you said, for most people is gonna go straight over there. Oh yeah, hundred percent. Because it kind of will boil down to it most is Lucille is wearing dark clothes, Edith is wearing lighter clothes to show that they're dark and light. Mm -hmm. But there's so many intricate little details. Like the blue dress that Lucille wears has a leaf patterning in black. It's barely visible in most scenes, but it's like an intricate leaf patterning across the entire front of the dress. Like the leaves that fall into Oldale House. Mm. Leaf owl, mate. Do you know what I mean? They're like... <sighs> yeah, I get what you're saying. I get it's it. It's so magnificent. And like, it makes me sad that for a lot of people it won't be noticeable. Like, the level of detailing that went into the costume design. It also does my nothing that, like, there's such an attention to detail on one of Del Toro's movies that's just not that good. Uh, and not even that. The house itself is a character unto itself. They alter the size of furniture throughout this movie. Are you fucking... Ju- what? Every what are you piece talking of- about? The house is... Wait, so anyone who doesn't know this, the house is created in its entirety. It actually existed for the time period they were they shooting. They knocked it down, didn't they? Yeah, they had to knock it down to really to be able to use a soundstage, yeah. Um, but every item in that house was designed specifically for Crimson Peak. None of it is reused. None of it has come from another set. It is all designed for that movie. Before you get on your big rant about whatever it is you're about to talk about, I'm going to interrupt you for one second. So you're telling me that that fucking shot when he goes through the hallway and you see all the fucking circular archways of all the fucking spikes and shit sticking out, some motherfucker actually sat there and built all that? Yeah. Fucking hell. It's a working set. Hiya. But what they then did was all of the furniture in the house, they created it twice. Hiya. In two different sizes. No, I'm not having that. 
So in scenes when Edith is... Wait, did, the, did the actors get paid no money for this movie? <laughs> Del Toro's like, fancy costume, build a fucking house, get me some real ghosts. But like, in He's like, I don't want no union ghosts. <laughs> He's like, I want real WGA approved ghosts. In scenes where PGA. Edith or any of the characters feel powerless or weak or scared, the furniture is slightly bigger. Yeah. Against when, like towards the end of the movie, when Edith kind of finds her power again. The furniture size is slightly smaller to represent that she's growing out of the house, basically, against being suffocated by the items there. And Mia, like, Mia, Mia Wyszykowska sitting there going, look, man, this is the second time I've done one of these fucking movies where shit's got oh, big and for small for a fucking weird director. Because... <laughs> I oh, know she did Alice in Wonderland, Tim like, Burton. I'm aware. Fuck, she but does like, kind of. It's play. Like, I'm assuming it wasn't like a dramatic change because unless you're looking for it, yeah, it doesn't become say, I wildly noticeable. But like, they, they, uh, there's two different sizes <laughs> of furniture for everything in the house, and somebody sat there. I'm assuming Guillermo del Toro. And once you know what we need to do to really drill in the fact that she is scared and alone, and there's nobody there for her, make the furniture a bit bigger. Just trust me. It'll work. And it's kind of off-putting. And I feel like it works quite well into, like, making the house so unnerving. Mm -hmm. Because there is, like, this slight change every now and then. The house does feel exceptionally fucking creepy. And you can't quite place your finger on why. But once you know that fact of, like, they changed the size of the fucking furniture, it makes sense. That's fucking bonkers. Yeah. To be fair, that is, that is like, the shit that fucking... Del Toro is known for. Yeah. That is like aggressively his shit, isn't it? Yeah. Do the I... dog next. What does the dog mean? <laughs> the dog. The dog's just a dog. <laughs> like, he was a Nola's dog who was supposed to have been killed by Thomas, but Thomas couldn't quite go a through Nola with it. Nola Upton, is that her name? Uh, or is it no. Pamela Upton? Pamela Upton, I think. Kate something. Not Kate Upton. No, and then Enola. She's got an Italian last name. I can yeah. tell you that much. I mean, they're all sharp, so it doesn't really matter. Um, yeah, because it's es. Mm-hmm. Um, but no, like the level of fucking detailing they went into in this movie that will probably not be noticed by a lot of people who saw it. <coughs> And I feel like this is a thing with a lot of Guillermo del Toro movies. It's the level of detail he will go into. That for a lot of people, it completely will just go over their heads. Yeah, like, he's he's a lunatic for shit like that. Like, I always go back to Hellboy 2, even though I don't like that movie. Because I just find that that's one of those movies where he just went super extra. Because there's like... I like the thing is, he put a like a lot of himself in that movie considering it's a franchise movie and i always talk about that one fucking scene where he like did the underground like market mm. and he set up all the market stalls and there's like all dudes in like creature costumes walking around and it's like he's like hey man like there's a fairy underground market here that doesn't need to be in this movie but i have imagined it so i have willed it yeah and he's like just this fucking bonkers shit yeah. and it's like that's I think that's why people love him as a filmmaker. Like I think I think Guillermo del Toro is one of those filmmakers. Now, I might sound like a prick when I say this, but I don't really care. He's one of those filmmakers that like 
in the last couple of years, people have I like gravitated towards because he's won Oscars and his films have been very like well received and like especially films like Pacific Rim because anybody can watch that. And it's like Pacific Rim was a good film. I haven't seen the second one. And it's like the the least Del Toro film that he released in like that time period. But I feel like he's one of those people. This is the bit that's probably going to make me sound like a prick because I sound like a gatekeeper. I feel like he's one of those people that people love to bring up in conversation so that they sound smart or so that they sound like, oh, yeah, I like him. He's one of those directors like it used to be Tarantino back in the day, like in the early 2000s. Like everybody loved fucking name dropping Tarantino because they wanted to sound like they wanted to be part of the conversation and yeah, sound like they knew what they were talking it about. It started and... happening with a few directors that, like, I've noticed. Like, yeah. Guillermo del Toro as well, and Bong Joon-ho is another. Christopher Nolan, especially, yeah. after the Batman movies. Like, everyone's like, oh, yeah. Like, people love name-dropping Christopher Nolan. And, like, I don't mean to sound like a prick, but it's really obvious when people mention, like, Guillermo del Toro in, like, in a conversation but then they can't tell you like anything he made, or like they can't. They go, oh yeah, he like the guy who made Pacific Rim. I've had yeah. that before. Of like, oh, yeah. so I, mean, I was talking to, you, I was talking about Guillermo del Toro, and like, oh, the Pacific Rim guy, and I was like, yeah, but like, yeah, he's the other piece of masterpiece <laughs> cinema. He he's made, like, he know? is one of those guys like people just love bringing up, especially after Shape of Water came out, mm-hmm. and they were like, hey man, Paddington's mum fucked a fish, and then everyone was like. And it's the same thing, like you said, that happened with Bong Joon-ho when fucking Parasite came out and won, like, 70 Oscars. And everyone was like, oh, yeah, like, the Parasite guy. And I was like, yeah, but he did, like, 50 other movies that yeah. weren't Parasite. Um, like, wh- I will never sit here and say I'm a fan of Bong Joon-ho. I, I've only ever seen Parasite. I like Parasite. I think Parasite is a really mm. great film. But, I like, outside of that, I could not... I couldn't... He made Host. That's the only other film I know for certain he made. And Snowpiercer, which is fucking Oh, yeah, tremendous. he made Snowpiercer. Um, I'm glad he made Parasite, though, because I think, in a weird way, Parasite saved his career because Okja was very, very controversial and Okja nearly got him... I don't want to say cancelled, but a lot of people went off him because of, like, the treatment of the animal in it and, and people, like, there was a whole thing about the animal being sexually assaulted and stuff like this in the film and whatever. I haven't seen it, so, so I can't speak to that movie. I'm really kind of glad that he made Parasite and was able to recover his career after that. But, yeah, I feel like Del Toro is one of those directors where people want to name-check him and people want to name-drop him because they want to sound cool and they want to sound like they know what they're talking about. But, like, they they couldn't tell you anything about his movies. Like, they couldn't tell you about his particular directing style or, like, as you've said, like, the things that he brings to the table, like, his attention to detail, like, his insane shot selections, like, the way that he uses, like, practical effects, the way that he tells a story, the way that he, like, every film, regardless of what the type of film it is that he's making, like, Pacific Rim or Hellboy or Mimic or Kronos or, like you know, Crimson Peak, everything feels like him. Yeah. Even the stuff that he doesn't fucking direct. Like, Cabinet of Curiosities, he did not direct a single one of those fucking episodes. He's in all of them because he hosts them all, but every single one of those things feels like he had a hand in it. Yeah. And it's like when you watch Orphan, which is made by, I think, the guy who did Jungle Cruise, um, that's not directed by him, it's only produced by him, but it feels like a movie he made. Are You Afraid of the Dark? Mama, two other films that he didn't direct that feel like movies that made me mm. Are You Afraid of the Dark? It's terrible. 
Um, yeah, but he then took the two fairy idea and put the because he took the two fairy idea from Hellboy and then put the two fairies in fucking Are You Afraid of the Dark? Yeah, which he only produced, though. but it's a good. I I liked it for what it was. Um, Monster yeah. reveal was way too early in it. The thing is, I there are things about this movie that I do like, and like it does feel like a quintessentially. It feels like Del Toro trying to make a movie that pays homage to like the people that he loved growing up, like people like Mary Shelley and like. You know, which he's going to do the ultimate fucking fanboy thing this year and allegedly is making Frankenstein. Yes. But, like, I love the way that this movie feels. Like, it's very atmospheric. It's very... Um, it feels like a movie from a different time. Mm-hmm. I think the acting, one person aside, is really good. Like, I'm not naming who. I don't need... I know who you say, I know who you're talking about. <laughs> do you? Okay. Um, but yeah, I just think like I think that person was woefully miscast. But hey, I mean they're not in it that much. So. Um, but I I think there are things about this film that I do enjoy. I just think, and like I think you talk about noticing things on the second watch. I said to you like after I watched this the second time, I don't understand how I didn't see the reveal with Lucille and Thomas coming. Because I said to you, when I watched it the second time, I was like, they very much have, like, me and my husband saw you from across the club and we liked your energy, like, energy about them. It does look like they are trying to get her into, like, a threesome situation. Um, And then I was like, the second time I watched it, I was like, oh, it's so fucking obvious that they're sibling shaggers. Like, it's so, like, massive spoilers if you haven't seen this movie. I'm really sorry. Um, But, yeah, like, I think that's the one thing for me that always leaves me scratching my head about this movie is, like, that insane plot twist and that insane, like... And there's no, like, real... Like, I know there's, like, bits of exposition where she's like, you know, we had abusive parents and we spent a lot of our time together. It feels like she fell in love with him. Yeah. And... And he kind of just went... It's kind of like a Norman Bates sort of situation, but a little, with, with yeah, like, a, a sister bit. rather than a mother. A little bit. Um, yeah, he's very... Good. I mean, it comes across that way anyway. Like, he, she fell in love with him, and then basically he just kind of went along with yeah. it. And then there's, like, the dark implication of, like, I'm not entirely sure if their relationship for an incestuous relationship is entirely consensual, then you've kind of got the whole implication that maybe she was sexually assaulting her brother the whole time, and then he just kind of, like, wasn't strong enough to, like, get away from the situation because he had no one else. So he was trapped, and then she had a baby with him that was fucking deformed, I think she mentions, or it was, like, sick. Yeah. And it died. And that's another thing as well. Like, why is that fucking baby floating around with some other ghost? Because, so it's with... I want to say Nola's ghost. Yeah, because she's the one yeah. that points them to the it's fucking It's with Nola's ghost. Because Nola tried to save the baby and failed, and I think they killed her. Oh, well, I say they. Lucille killed her mm-hmm. when the baby died. So she yeah. has the baby. So, like, I think the first time I saw this movie particularly, I was on board with it for the most part. And, like, there is some good shit in this movie... But, like, that ending is just what does it for me. Like, when that reveal happens, I'm just like, that's way too much. And then, like, as I say, you pile on the implications of what that means in the grand scheme of things and stuff. And I'm just like, you, 
I feel like you over-egg the pudding a little bit too much. I'm like, you make them in a relationship and then you throw in like a fucking dead baby and you throw in all this other shit. And I'm just like, you kind of lose sight of what the actual story of the film is. And I feel like the ending rug pull of like the revelation of that relationship just kind of undermines the rest of the story. Because you could have literally just have them be siblings. And like, because there's the whole subplot about them mining the red clay and what the red clay is for. And then they're trying to like get back their fortune and try and like uh-huh. reclaim their money so that they can have this life together and restore their family home, which is a good subplot in itself. I like, but I just don't feel like you needed to have the brother sister relationship be what it was. I mean, I don't know what your feelings are. I on mean, it. I, I could give or take on it. I, it doesn't bother me as much as it bothers you. I think it's quite an interesting plot twist to have in there. Um, and it also gives, I think the main part it gives, it gives Thomas a chance to be partially redeemed Yeah. as a character. Um, <clears throat> but like, it doesn't, I'm not, it, it, oh, you said meh for me. I don't really care one <coughs> or another. I just think it's gross and it's a fucking weird thing to be in a fucking mainstream movie. Like personally, Yeah. like I just think it's gross, sure. but you know. Um, even by Del Toro's dad, I okay. just think it's fucking gross. Um, what did you What do you think about the mining subplot? In this movie? I like the mining <laughs> coming subplot. from a mining family. Like I love the mining subplot. I think it's great. I love how into getting his mine working Thomas is. He's all like, and it's the bit when he burns his hand, and he's like, "Your father would be proud of me." <laughs> to eat it, he's so funny. Like it's just adorable. Though. It's so funny because like. He, I'm sure he explains it at the beginning, but I can't remember. Like he talks about like the the clay being like a malleable substance yes. that they can like use for like. I think he's like he wants to use it for like bricks and building and shit mm. like that, didn't he? Like he's trying to like use it as like a building substance. Um, but yeah, like when I was watching it the second time, I was like. Has this, like, subplot always... Because there's just, like, random scenes of them just going back to this fucking, like, big uh, industrial fucking digger digging this fucking, like, red shit up. And I'm like... And, like, there's a well of it in the house or, like, wells of it in the basement of the house. And, like, there is one cool scene in this um, where, like, one of the ghosts takes on, like... A more corporeal form. And then that's her actual corpse. Yeah. That's not a ghost. Yeah, like you see, you see like, the corpses come up. It out kind of, of like there. yeah, it like because that's where they're storing the dead women. Yeah, it kind of like takes on like a solid shape. Yeah, or like it looks like the way the fit the scene is shot, like a ghost becoming solid again, which is really fucking cool. And again, I would love to know the fucking physics of the ghosts in this movie. Because they all are, like, floaty, like, fucking ethereal motherfuckers. But you can touch them all. Like, she's fucking I don't touching my man's can. cheek at the end. I like, think Edith can. But I do think that's an Edith thing, not a... Yeah. Ghost Whisperer origins. <laughs> it's just, like, fucking stroking his dead man cheek at the end. Mm. Um, but, yeah. Like, I don't know. For me, personally, this is on the weaker end of Del Toro's filmography. See, this is one of my favourite Del Toro films. Hey, look, man. I watched Pan's Labyrinth and I rewatched this. I could like one or the other. You can't have both. I love both of them. So, so. I chose to like Pan's Labyrinth. 
Um, but no, I just, I think it's such a stunning movie and the level of detailing. I missed the major fucking point with one of the dresses as well. Okay. Well, podcast not over yet. I know. It's fine. I can tell, tell you. <laughs> Lucille's blue dress that she wears when she's at the house, I'm pretty yeah. sure it's the blue dress, has a bustle train. At the back. A bus or train? A bustle train. Okay. So it's like bustled at the top and it turn- comes out to a train. Like drags along the floor. I know, you know what, what a train, train is. is. Uh, throughout the film, that train gets longer. Okay. Like it is tying her into the house. Oh, for God's sake. I, uh... Magnificent. Absolutely fucking Magnificent. And also their outfit design play into the metaphor of the butterfly and the moth, which I fucking adore as well. I would be, I like, I would be fascinated to know this, and this is something I would love to sit down and talk to GDT about, because um, you never get the answer from her perspective, but you do. Like, obviously, at the end, you find out that he becomes a ghost, and like, mm-hmm. I assume his ghost stays on the ground because that's where it is. But, like, when she kills Lucille... I don't think it does. I think his ghost goes. Well, yeah, this is what I was going to ask, because I was like... Lucille's trapped in the house on her yeah, own. Yeah, because you never see what happens to... Lu- like, you never see Lucille as a ghost. Yeah, you do. Do you? Yeah, she's playing the piano at the end of the movie. Oh, I walking down the drive. fucking miss that bit. Because yeah. I was going to say what happens to the, like, the so ghost at the end. So, literally... My bad, sorry. I'm pretty sure Thomas's ghost passes over that's what happens when she touches him mm. like he, for, he he basically accepts what's happened so and be free demon on, pretty much uh but no, you see lucille at the end of the film playing the piano in the the um drawing room oh i forgot that because i saw the i saw like i heard the narration and i saw the blood on the floor mm. and she was all like some ghost are tied to a date or a place but like i must have like looked away when she was playing the piano yeah you see lucille's ghost at the end yeah yeah, because that was something I would have been fascinated to know. It's like, would they like in death? Would they have both still been tied to the house? Because as you said, like for, you make free mention of the fact that the ghost is the house is pulling her there. But I think that's because of the murderous acts that she committed well, in the house and in the name of the house. Not so much. So this is the interesting thing with the ghosts in this movie. The ghosts are all tied to a location. It's a location where something terrible happened to them. Mm-hmm. Uh, so. Uh, so does that mean her dad wives... would just be like haunting a fucking no. toilet all the time? <laughs> no, like he, he he could still be, but he might not have. It's Some, like moaning Merle motherfucker. Sorry. Yeah. So <laughs> like the the wives are like drawn to the house because that's where they were murdered, mm-hmm. and they never got any closure. Their bodies were never found. Their mother, her daughter, got away with the murder. Lucille is tied to the house because she is tied to the house, like. This is a this is siblings who their house has fallen apart. They're making no money. Their house is still full of like relatively expensive items, but they refuse to leave. They've tied themselves intrinsically to that house. So the reason I don't think Thomas is tied to the house is because the final conversation he has with Lucille before she kills him, and he's like, "We can leave." Yeah, we could be free. We don't have to be here. We can be free, and that's him letting go of his ties to that house. Mm-hmm. He doesn't need the house. Yeah, he just wants like, to I'm be out. free. Yeah. So when Lucille kills him, he he basically he comes back to help protect Edith. But once that's done, I do think he just leaves. He's not tied there like Lucille is because yeah. Lucille refuses to let go of that house. Nice. Yeah, that makes sense. Ghosts are a metaphor. Ghosts are a fucking metaphor, man. 
this see this is the thing that gets me this movie is it's so full of metaphors and like double meanings for everything that it's fucking magnificent like one of the first conversations uh lucille and edith have they talk about butterflies and moths mm-hmm. and edith says uh, Mer- meredith nope lucille says to edith um we don't have butterflies we have black moths and those black moths eat the butterflies mm-hmm. because something beautiful uh, so she says to me about being something beautiful but useless, not being able to survive. You have to be strong. Yeah, which is a metaphor for the relationship that they're about to have with each other. Yeah. And so throughout the entire movie, they take on the, the personifications of the butterfly and the moth. Mm-hmm. And that is, again, represented in the clothing they wear um, and how, they're, how, like, how they behave. But the, the beautiful thing at the end of this movie is that the butterfly kills the moth. Mm. And it's free again. Yeah. But they talk about how quickly butterflies die, how the cold kills butterflies. Yeah. And you take Edith from Boston, from the warmth of Boston, and you drop her in the cold darkness of England. And I will back that. We are a cold and dark country. Like, do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, before we wrap it up, I have three questions for Okay. You. First question, do you consider this a horror movie? See, it's one of those odd ones, because it gets credited as a horror movie quite a lot, and there are plenty of parts in it that would make it a horror film, the ghost design being one all on itself, because those ghosts are terrifying to look at. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've always I've always thought of it more of a gothic romance. Yeah. Personally, I kind of cheated putting it on the list. Yeah. It's more fucking Bronte than Bram Stoker. Yeah. Um, Benedict Cumberbatch and Emma Stone nope. being originally cast in this movie. Nope. Do you think the movie would have been as nah. good? I I don't think like I love Emma Stone. I don't think she. I don't think either. Emma Stone is a particularly good actress with a lot of range, um, and I don't think that Benedict Cumberbatch would have been able to have brought the emotional range to the role that Tom Hiddleston does. Like, there's scenes towards the end of this movie where he's doing all the empathetic stuff. I always just think that Benedict Cumberbatch comes across as being a really cold person. I think most stuff I've seen him in, he plays quite like a dickish dude. Although... Like, because Doctor Strange is a bit of a dick. Sherlock Holmes is a bit of a dick. Uh, Start off a ten, he's a bit of a dick. The only film I've watched him in where I found myself gravitating towards him was the imitation game, but that's because he's playing Alan Turing. And I was like, I know that this is a real dude. Do you know what, talking about him giving an emotional performance, actually, he could have pulled it off. And I only say that because I've seen Third Star, Mm. which you have never seen. No. And that film is fucking heartbreaking. And he is magnificent in it. But I don't know if I would have bought bought him in the role of Thomas Sharp. Could you imagine who would have been in this fucking movie if it was made in, like, 2006? I do, like... Talking about him leaving the film, though, because he left due to creative differences, apparently. Yeah, but it was a very amicable decision. But apparently there was an interview where Guillermo del Toro joked that he left the film because Jessica Chastain was playing his sister and not his wife. (laughs) And then when Benedict Cumberbatch was asked why he left the movie, he was like, oh, go ask Guillermo, he knows why. (laughs) 
And so, like, in my head now, it is, oh, no, he left because he wanted to be uh, making out with Jessica Chet. Well, I mean... He still would have done that. (laughs) If he'd read the script. (laughs) They changed the plot, though, after uh, Mia and Tom were cast. Yeah. So I don't know how much of that got added in. Yeah. But, yeah, Emma Stone, definitely, I don't think. Uh, Jessica Chastain originally um, was offered the part of playing Edith and was like, no, I want to play that. I want to play Lucille. Because I think it's more Far interesting. Far more interesting. Mate, she's fucking banging in this She's movie. great she, in this. She's absolutely fantastic in like, To be fair, I've never seen anything with Jessica Chat. Oh, actually, that's a lie I have. I was going to say, I've never seen anything with her in that I haven't liked, but I've seen Mama. I didn't think Mama was... But did you like her in it? Yeah. There we go. Because she plays a fucking... The, the front woman of a punk band and she looks fucking rad in it. Solid. I, I like... I don't think anyone on the podcast knows because I don't think we've ever mentioned it, but I have a massive thing for Jessica Chastain. I know you do. I think she's I'm all fucking gorgeous. What was your third question um, for me? Uh, what was the third question? I don't know. I'm not in your head. Um, do you think this movie, because of the placement in Guillermo del Toro's filmography, so coming after pacific rim which was this huge bombastic summer blockbuster action movie mm-hmm. and then before shape of water which is the movie that he won the oscar for mm-hmm. do you think this is this is a movie that is kind of largely forgotten yeah and underappreciated yeah. in his filmography and it came out like two months before star wars like which i, I know like the force awakens it came out two months before force awakens which i know Completely different audiences, but it didn't get a long time to play in cinemas before it went. No, out. Uh, yeah, I'm with you. I think it's a massively overlooked part of it, part of his um, back catalogue of films. But also, I feel like the marketing didn't do this film any favors either. Yeah, they marketed it was very it, much marketed as a, as a straight up horror movie. Yeah. And the amount of interviews I read in the run up to it coming out with Guillermo del Toro, where it was like, "Oh, she made a horror movie," and he's like, "No, it is a gothic." Romance. It is not a horror film. I don't know why everyone seems to think that. Yeah. Um, I mean, I'll... there are horror elements to it, which is part of the reason that I got away with putting it on the podcast. Mm-hmm. But it is at its heart a gothic romance. Yeah, hundred um, percent. Um, I think a lot of people didn't help. Like some of the early reviews from like press and stuff, where they were like, "Yeah, it's really violent and really gory, and like it's got ghosts." And I think a lot of people missold it i don't think it's i mean there's like there is violence in yeah. it and like there the is some gore i yeah. mean the opening as well with like her dad's death and stuff yeah. but like it's not a violent film it's not particularly a gory movie no. i think maybe the misunderstanding of like the ghost actually being draped in blood maybe yeah instead of it being the red clay of the ground well, like even like the ghosts being there the ghosts don't really do anything well, like, this is the they thing. don't do anything haunting this is the interesting thing is because i remember watching this film for the first time and being very surprised when i figured out what the ghosts were doing because mm. generally in films like this ghosts are not very nice they're hunting people. They're haunting people. It's like a frightening situation. Yeah. Whereas the ghosts in this are specifically trying to warn Edith. Like they are trying to help mm. save her life. Yeah. Um, which I didn't see. I didn't see the first time we watched the film until it's revealed, and you're like, "Holy fucking shit!" It all makes so much more sense now. Like they're all chasing her to the areas of the house she needs to be to find like the next part of the whole picture. Yeah. Um, which I think is a great use of ghosts. Mm-hmm. And it's also the um, reveal when... Because at the beginning of the film, we get told, beware of Crimson Peak. Yeah. It's what her mum tells her. 
And it's not until halfway through this movie that the house gets referred to as Crimson Peak. Yeah. And then you go, oh, shit. Yeah. Shit's about to go down. Shit's about to go down. Mm-hmm. So what is your score for this movie? I'm going to give it a straight up five. Cool. I'm going to give it a three. Because even though be. even though I don't like it, there are enough elements to it that I do like. And to be fair, I'm never going to straight up like dog my man out. Like I'm never going to give him a shit score. even Because I appreciate his work too much. And I appreciate what he tried to do. And I think... There's a lot of stuff in this movie that doesn't work for me, but the things that do work are like, they they work. Um, and it's not a fucking, it's not a disaster. It's not a terrible film. No. Like it's a fucking well-made film. It's just a film that I don't enjoy. Um, but yeah, that's our thoughts on Crimson Peak. Uh, as always, if you want to come find us on social media, S-I-M-A-H-F-Pod on Twitter, Sam Arad, a horror fan, all lowercase, all one word on Instagram and Tumblr. As we said in our last episode... The algorithms for everything is fucked at the moment. So if you want to keep on keep up with everything that we're doing, find us on social media, get get on one of our links, subscribe to us on whatever platform it is that you listen to, get your little notifications on, and you'll never miss an episode. Um, but feel free to come and interact with us wherever we have social media. We are very active, and we will we will continue to be active uh, in within the realms that we're allowed to. Because apparently now on Twitter you can't post external links or um, like polls, you'll instantly get put into spam, which is nice to know. Um, so we will be back with a couple of episodes during this week. So I will be back uh, either very late on Wednesday or first thing early Thursday morning, depending on what time I get back from London, because I am off to London on Wednesday to see a preview showing of The Evil Dead Rise with a Q&A with director Lee Cronin. So I will have either very, very late Wednesday night when I get back from London, a non-spoiler review for you guys, or that will be on Thursday. And we will be back on either Friday or Saturday, depending on what our schedule is looking like, with a review of Renfield for everybody, because we are going to go and see that at the end of this week. And then we, we, we will be back next Monday, the 17th of April, with a look at a wounded fawn. And given how much Lee has taken a deep dive into the metaphors of this movie, uh, you guys had better start researching Greek history now because it's probably going to get really fucking weird. Um, But yeah, as always, I've been Simon. I've been Lee. Stay spooky, stay safe. Take care, guys. Goodbye. Bye.